Every time I turn around, he seems to be celebrating a goal. Alan is meant to be the difference in the Champions League. You know, they want one when it's a tight semi-final. He'll score one in a tight semi-final too. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. So unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. Right, I am delighted to welcome our guest for this week's You Had to Be There. It is none other than the legendary French sports journalist Philippe Beauclair. Philippe, good morning to you. How are you? Um, not too bad. Good morning to you. Thank you for having me. We, when we asked you, expected five football, but actually it is heavily <laughs> skewed in favour of cricket. <laughs> I'm afraid so. Uh, cricket is my favourite game. Um, I, I, I hesitated because, to be honest, the thing is that when you ask me, I had to be there. First of all, I had to choose the occasions on which I was at the ground, where it happened. And the second thing, I had to think of individual performances, and which is not my way of looking at things normally. I, I can think of team performances, for example. Um, I would certainly have put, you know, uh, Arsenal's 2-1 win over Barcelona as one of my five moments if it had been for just a sporting occasion. But if I have to take one player out or one singular individual performance out, I think, ah, no, that doesn't quite work. So obviously cricket being a game which is both team sport and individual sport lends itself more, I think, to this kind of thing. OK, that's it. And I think that, yeah, I, I think, yes, that. I think it is quite logical, but you know there, there's quite quite a bit of football though. There is, there's loads of football. I, I'm interested in again that um, it's club football as opposed to international football that you've gone for. Yeah, for the simple reason that uh, I've attended thousands of club games and perhaps only hundreds of international games. So otherwise, I would have said, okay, Michel Platini, um, and I could have. <laughs> taken five performances by Michel Platini, for example. But I wasn't there when he scored the, the winning goal in the final of the 1984 um, European Championship. I wasn't there. So, uh, again, it's the thing of uh, what matters is the, the, the imprint it leaves on you, um, almost physically, as a matter of fact, because you're part of this giant organism, which is a sport audience, and, and you participate in a way which is completely different from the way that, say, uh, I could think, you know, for example, Yannick Noah winning the um, French Open, uh, which was a huge moment uh, for, for all of us. And for me, I was a very keen tennis player at the time. But again, I was not at Roland Garros. Where, whereas I was, I can promise you, I was at every single of these five occurrences. OK, well, um, let's start with a match between Pakistan and England at the Oval. This is the fifth test mm-hmm. in yeah. 1987. Uh, Abdul Qadir is not going to be a name that many of our viewers this morning here in Ireland are, are watching, but I'm sure that um, our English viewers are like, oh yeah, we remember this. So can you can you put a bit of context on this performance for us? Well, uh, first of all, I, I, I passed the cricket test. I'm an England supporter. And strangely enough, the two cricket performances I've chosen have both been against England. <laughs> um, so which should tell you something about how amazing they were. Um, Abdul Qadir, to those who, who don't know him, was, um, uh, because he's unfortunately uh, left us, uh, probably one of the all-time great spin bowlers um, uh, in cricket. And he was at the time a kind of, of dinosaur. He was the last exponent of a dying art or what people thought was a dying art which was leg spin bowling and i'd fallen in love with cricket uh, as soon as i i settled in in london 
and started to go to games uh, watching Middlesex. And this, amazingly enough, was the very first test I went to wow. at the Oval. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't say I chose wisely because this was not the time of basketball where, you know, um, the England team goes at five runs and over. It was quite a stodgy affair. Javed me and that scored at uh, 260, I believe, in an innings that seemed to last forever. Uh, Mudassar Nazar was there, which is a, a name that will send chills down the spine of everybody who wants their cricket to be played at a good, uh, a good pace. But anyway, it was a great, it was a grand occasion. And uh, you have to say that some of the players uh, in both teams, I mean, rank amongst, you know, the greatest of the generation. So, you know, for example, Pakistan, the captain was Imran Khan. Shevet Miantad was uh, was batting. Uh, the great Wazim Akram, probably the greatest left arm um, swing and fast bowler of all time, was also there. And, you know, England still had players like Mike Gatting was the uh, was at the time the captain. He had won the Ashes in the in the winter. David Gower, the great David Gower, was batting. It was two very, very strong teams. And it was the flattest of pitches, like nothing was happening. And then suddenly out of nowhere comes this weird animal. Um, as I said, a dinosaur. Uh, I've compared him sometimes to a silicon. It's like you think it's a species which has disappeared and you find in the depth of the ocean a living fossil. And he's not only uh, the exponent of a dying art, but he's one of the greatest exponents of this dying art. And I, what I've, when I fell in love with cricket, I've, I fell in love with the intricacy of it, with the complexity of it, but also with the fact that it was possible to be a fabulous bowler and to send the ball down actually more slowly than I, as a starter, as a beginner, could do it in the nets. I think, how is that possible? You should be smashed to all part of the parks. And obviously, it's a bit more complicated than that. And, and Kadir was also somebody who had a quasi-mystical approach to his cricket. So he was defending, he was a very proud Pakistani, and he defended his national team. Sometimes, I mean, he was incredibly competitive and incredibly aggressive on the field. But there was also another element to him, was that for him, the art of leg spin, which is really an art, an art form, one of the, I mean, greatest art forms in sport, was also about getting in touch with some kind of greater truth. And to do that by constant practice and thinking and, and, and evaluation of his own art, and he had developed an arsenal of deliveries that I think very few other leg spinners or slow bowlers have ever developed in the game, including Shane Warne. You know, and he could, he, he knew, and I, I mean, I know maybe we're talking to people who are not necessarily that much into cricket, but for example, one of the weapons of a leg spinner is the googly, right? Which is the wrong one, uh, which goes the other way that you're expecting to do. Well, at Ducardi, I didn't have one. He had three. He had one that he made sure that the batsman could identify so that the batsman would think afterwards, yeah, okay, that's a googly coming. Except he had the second one, which was a bit more disguised, and he had the third one, which you couldn't read at all. And he did that of three paces, walking paces, on an absolute flat pitch on which the England bowlers, the slow bowlers, that is, who were at the time Phil Edmonds, the left armour, and John Embury, who never spun a ball in his life, um, they had taken zero wickets for something like plenty in the first innings. And and then we thought, okay, this is going to a draw. This is going to be so boring. And then this man appears and, and give this unbelievable, unbelievable exhibition of the most difficult art form uh, of spin bowling, which is leg spin bowling. And I, I was I was mesmerized. I was like the, the batsman, you know, on the pitch who couldn't understand what was going on. I couldn't understand, but I knew one thing. It was, it was beautiful to watch. And we were in touch with... Uh, one of the great artists of world sport 
and I think of any country of any era. Um, I think you've exactly explained what this whole slot is supposed to be about, where you're, you're witnessing something unfold and, and you believe that it's somebody uh, in the hunt for or discovering a greater truth. Uh, seven wickets for 96 runs. Did Pakistan win the test? I presume they did with those scores. No. No, 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 no right. they didn't because they had, they had taken their time to, um, to, to score their runs and plenty of them over 700 in the first innings. And uh, despite the fact, I mean, uh, Abdul Qadir did take, uh, I think, three wickets in the second innings, but uh, England just uh, basically dug in and they, they drew uh, with quite comfortably actually scoring 315 for four wickets and with uh, Mike Gatting scoring a, a, a typical Gatting innings, which was both uh, prudent and sometimes brutal and scoring 150 not out and England were saved. So that's absolutely extraordinary. That's typical cricket. I've been at cricket games, which honestly, just thinking of them makes my, my spine tingle. Uh, the day when there were four innings in the day at Lords against the West Indies. And I've been very lucky. I've been to loads of great moments of cricket. But this is a game that ended in a draw. <laughs> and yet it is, I think, the single greatest performance I saw by any cricketer on the pitch. Um, you, you picked a second uh, cricket one as well. We may as well stick with the cricket and move on to the football. Yep. This is against England at the Oval Again. In, in 2013. <laughs> Why did you fall in love with cricket? Um because I, I, first of all, because I couldn't understand it. And therefore, since I'm curious by nature, I wanted to know why are people getting so excited about this weird game? And I had a, a, a teacher who was, um, at the time I was, I arrived in London because I was and I still am a musician. And uh, the person, the A&R, who signed me to an English label um, called Michael Way, and he was a cricket nut. And he kept talking about cricket. And I said, you know, why keep talking about cricket? And he explained, he said, well, he said, it's chess on grass. Right. <laughs> and I'm a very keen chess player. I was actually quite a, a good club player at the time. And I thought, I've got to, to know more about that. Then I went to see a game. Uh, it was at, at Lords between Middlesex and Warwickshire. And I was sitting quite next to the pitch. And this is where I realized that, my goodness, this is fast. This is incredibly technical. And this is extremely dangerous. Because I think Wayne Daniel was bowling that day and he was bowling at 90 miles an hour. I'm thinking, well, how, how is this possible? Uh, and they looked frightened, some of the batsmen. So they, there is more to this game. <laughs> and then I started playing it very quickly. And um, since I was a decent tennis player, I realized, you know, I could actually time the ball a little bit. And, you know, you get the bug. I started reading about it, discovered that cricket is also one of those games um, which has inspired some of the greatest sports writing ever. And you put all this together and uh, the attraction of exoticism as well, because I was unused to sports where uh, the, the main powers were like India and Pakistan. You know, that that's something that is simply not the case anywhere else apart from hockey. So there's all this. It's a fascination. And I had the, I caught the bug. I still have it more than ever. And uh, I have to say that there is no day that I look more in the sporting calendar than that the uh, first day that I spent at Lords for the Test match, which I've done religiously for a number of years now. Philippe, this second pick is uh, Kumar Sangakara, 134 yeah. not out versus England at the Oval. This was uh, 10 years ago, June 2013. Like, I'm curious, when, when there are opposition performances like Sangakara or Kadir at the Oval, 
what, what, what's the atmosphere like amongst the the, the English fans? Like, is it, <laughs> is it, a, is it respectful? Is it uh, almost awe at what an opposition player is doing, yeah, or is it, is awe, it quite the opposite? Oh, oh, is the right word. Uh, first of all, obviously, cricket um, publics and crowds are very different from other crowds because I think that even though you might have an incredibly a strong link with your own team, and I do have an incredibly strong link with with the England team. Um, your those link is even stronger to the truth of the game, and um, which is why when you have had the privilege of watching, I don't know, Sunil Gavaskar bat, uh, or Mohamed Azaruddin, or you've seen Shane Warne bowl, or you know, I could go on like this forever. There is a, again a greater truth, and cricket is perhaps better to recognize it than recognizing it than other games. And therefore, at the beginning, you're really quite annoyed because <laughs> you want them out. You want them smashed to all parts of the ground. And then you realize, well, no, actually, this is pretty special. And in the case of Kumar Sangakara, I mean, it was a one-day international as well, which is pretty unusual for me because I, I go to test matches rather than one day. One thing is that from the very beginning of that, uh, of that innings, uh, I think everybody around the ground realized oh, my goodness, this is a little bit different. Um, I've seen more spectacular innings uh, with perhaps uh, more memorable shots. I have never seen an innings in which a batsman was so much in control of what he was doing. And it's a point where you don't just applaud the beautiful shots, and there were plenty of those because, you know, Sangakara was a, a beautiful and such an elegant player and technically perfect. Uh, even when he was blocking the ball, it was great because this was a master in total control uh, of his art again. And the impression, there, there was a certain, at times in the cricket, there was a certain dignity about some performances. It's like there is almost like a, a moral authority to, to an innings. And this was the case. I mean, Sengakara, I think anybody who follows cricket would agree that he's one, one of the true greats and I was lucky to see him, uh, perhaps at, at the very top of his game, where he made it look so simple, where, you know, the arc of the bat was hitting the ball for either for a cover drive or an off drive or even a pull, which is perfection. And, and, and the crowd responded to, to that, you know, enthusiastically. He got an ovation for his for his hundred, and you know that won the game. Finished 134 not out, if I'm not mistaken, and um, um, Shudanka um, went through. And um, it was um, and it was coming, by the way, on on the back of a game in which the England bowlers had been extremely good and had been totally on top of things. This time, that that was not the case, and. Uh, uh, you know, Jimmy Anderson was bowling, uh, Graham Swan was bowling, but Sega Kara was just, you know, was the master at work, judging absolutely every single ball on its merits and finding a solution. You know, I mean, he probably faced, what, 150 balls. I don't have the stats in my head. But every single one of those was perfectly judged, um, either blocked or let it go or just hit it. Uh, just, yeah, magnificence, elegance, authority, and also humility, because Sangakara is not one of those players who, you know, will make a lot of what he does. Is uh, that's his nature? Um, um, he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to. Can I 
ask you a question about your appreciation for this. Um, you mentioned that you were a musician. I suspect most of the people who've been listening to you speaking to us for the last 20 odd years on Off The Ball didn't realise that you have uh, an alternative <laughs> exterior yes. life. Um, does your appreciation for sport and the way you've spoken about it is is very specific. Is it is it different, do you think, because of your background as a musician? Possibly because of that, not my background, full stop, because um, I, by training, I'm a ph- philosopher and um, philosophy teacher, rather philosopher, I won't use that word, philosophy teacher. So I do look at things perhaps, uh, perhaps a bit differently from some other people who do not have this kind of training. And then there's the music as well. And I think perhaps because of the type of music I do and the type of musician I am, I'm more sensitive to craftsmanship, uh, not just artistry, but craftsmanship and what the uh, amount of skill that you need to do something well and the amount of skill you need to have to go beyond the point where people realize you have skill, that you master it to such an extent that it becomes natural and people say effortless, uh, which is the wrongest term to use. <laughs> In, in any kind of sport, because this is effortlessness is just the produce of incredibly hard work. And when uh, multiple intellectual calculations and an extraordinary uh, communi- level of communication between the brain and, and the limbs and the body as a whole uh, takes you somewhere else where you're totally, totally on top of what you do and which obviously music is absolutely crucial if you want to, you know, the greatest virtuosi are not people who give you the impression they're really struggling through Sibelius' violin concerto, right? Uh, but believe me, they did in the past when they started to learn that. Uh, but then you can get to that level, which is what you should aspire to as an artist. And I believe that great sports people are, are people who precisely give this impression of, of uh, ease and effortlessness. Uh, you know, it's like Usain Bolt. People think, oh, he's cruising to victory. No, he's not cruising to victory. No, he's not cruising to victory. He's been working like mad. He's, he's fab- phenomenally talented, yes, but he's been working like mad to make sure he could be that person who can fly um, on the asphalt or whatever it's called these days and uh, and, and be faster than anybody else. And and these are the, the moments when you see a, a sports person being able to, to be in communication with his own or, or their own art is, is something extra special. Um, and Kumar Sangakara, that, that innings was one of those moments. That's so fascinating because Ronnie O'Sullivan, I've heard of an interview with him recently where he compared playing snooker to being a violinist in an orchestra where he's ah. you know, connecting music to shots uh, and how he sometimes does that in his head, which completely ties yeah. into what you're talking about with cricket. It's, it's a fascinating area, I think. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised because he can give the impression of being an effortless can't see, mm-hmm. and um, and also because I think that the, the, also the beauty of his game perhaps has got something to do with it. That because it is so beautiful, um, you think it's easy. You think oh, oh, these people are just super talented. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, they well, they are super talented, but the way they work, their bodies and their brains work, is a produce of um, not just gift but an extraordinary dedication to your to your own art. And I use the word art, you know, a lot because. Uh, the artistic dimension of sport is something that uh, for me is absolutely uh, pre- prevalent and which is why there are some great sportsmen and 
great teams that I really leave me totally cold. Yeah, I won't give names. Well, because I, <laughs> I don't find it. You know, I because to me, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have really any value. Thierry Henry is on your list. So he obviously does not yeah. leave you cold. Well, that's less of a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he's on my list. And again, it could have been a few performances there. But the, game, the game against Liverpool um, uh, in the 2003-2004 season. Um, but the one I've, I've chosen is because it was perhaps his masterpiece, uh, which was uh, February 2006. Uh, a very young uh, Arsenal team goes to the Bernabeu, is not given a chance. It's in the Champions League, of course. It's not given a chance there. And we have the Cherry masterclass. <laughs> um, and again, somebody who seems uh, taller than anybody else on the pitch, uh, stronger than anybody else on the pitch, cleverer than anybody else on the pitch. Um, and everybody around him certainly in the Arsenal side, is taking their cue from him. And uh, this is not, by the way, uh, a small Real Madrid team. Even if some of the, uh, some of the players are past their best, um, but you've got Duties there, Zinedine Zidane is there, Robinho is there, Raul is there, Ronaldo, David Beckham, Roberto Carlos, uh, also Jonathan Woodgate, amazingly enough. He didn't last long. Um, and in fact, of that, in fact, in fact, in fact uh, uh, across the pitch from them, uh, you've got an Arsenal team which has a back four, uh, which is Ebwe, Toure, Santa Ross, Flamini. So you don't give them much of a chance, uh, you know, against the uh, the Galacticos. But but Thierry was just sublime uh, all through the game, and obviously the moment that sticks out is this uh, this goal, which I think everybody's seen, where. He picks the ball. I think Jess Fabregas gives him the ball just past the halfway line. And then suddenly you see all these Real Madrid players uh, falling like nine pins and all not knowing what to do. Or, uh, and he's, he's totally toying with them. And he slots the ball almost nonchalantly in the Thierry Henry fashion, in a typical Thierry Henry finish, which is slightly to the left of the box, angled in the, in the far corner. There's nothing you can do about that. And again... People will say, oh, you know, it comes so easily to Thierry. No, 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 no. Because uh, I've talked to, to Thierry about that kind of goal. And he explained to me, you know what? The reason why I find the net is because when I was at Monaco uh, at the time, I think he was working with uh, Rémy Garde at the time. Uh, or Claude Puel. He was working with Claude Puel. And he said, we must have done this thousands of times. He would stay over after training and they would exactly rehearse that particular um, a passage of play where he gets the ball on the left wing, goes back inside and the shot across and he beats the keeper every single time. And you could see, I mean, even the, um, I mean, I went absolutely berserk. I was in the, in the press box, which is very, very bad, very bad indeed. <laughs> um, but we were encouraged by that, by the behavior of our Spanish colleagues. We were just above us at the Bernabeu and who were cheering everything. And we thought after a while, you know, sod it uh we're going to be spanish about this and we all jumped up and uh, celebrated like mad uh this 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 goal um which was just uh, after the um uh, beginning of the second half and uh and the the real madrid uh, audience to give them their credit actually applauded and um 
after the game, I remember going um, with my friend Amy Lawrence, you know, um, probably, yeah, yeah. you know, of The Guardian and, and a few other gooners. Uh, we met in a bar in um, uh, in central Madrid and we thought, mm, OK, we've just beaten them. What What's it going to be like? And in fact, people came to us and shook us by the hand and said, guys, you've got the greatest player on the planet. <laughs> oh, we, we wish we had him. We wish we had him, uh, which is very generous and very typical. It has to be said of Real Madrid fans. And and it was not just the goal, but I think there is another uh, moment in that game which shows how much Thierry was in, in charge of everything. Uh, Arsenal were leading 1-0. Uh, Real Madrid were trying to have a go, but he got the ball. So it was in the dying minutes oh, of yeah. the game. So it was all about, you, you know the one? Yeah, I'm talking he runs about. past Ramos like he's not there. Yeah, and he just literally pushes the ball alongside the, the touchline. <laughs> And it, it, it run, he runs past him, and the guy just like, what? Who is what does that thing? Then he goes to the towards the uh, uh, the corner flag, and uh, and he, he gets um, uh, a throw in for for Arsenal, and his exp- the expression on his face as well is is magnificent. <laughs> well, he looks like he's because, not out of breath whatsoever. Really. No, it's just like that's easy. <laughs> just like the way he celebrated his goals. Because he's no, he's not known apart from the famous goal against Tottenham as somebody who really explodes when he when he scores. He's somebody always somebody who tries to, uh, or tried unfortunately, uh, to um, to keep it within himself and to concentrate on on the next goal. And he's never happy with himself, never ever. And even on this occasion, you know, at Santiago Bernabeu, in in the uh, ground of a club, which by the way had tried to sign him a number of times before. And he had given a demonstration on the pitch of exactly why they were right to chase him. And we were extremely lucky to still have him at the Arsenal. Um, he, he owned the pitch, which is something which is very rare in, in a team sport. Because you, you could think that, for example, uh, you would think of um, some of Lionel Messi's greatest performances or Michel Platini's greatest performances or Ronaldo Fenomeno, uh, greatest performances, and thinking, well, that was really illuminated the, the, the game. There are very few instances where it's almost down to a single player. Yeah. That the player, I mean, it's not to say that the other 10 players, um, actually uh, 13 players, 14 players, because there were some subs, uh, didn't do their job uh, beautifully, which they did. It was just that he was on a different plane. <laughs> and... Um, it was a theory we had at the time. People were starting to wonder if his powers were waning a little bit. Oh, no, they weren't. I, I'm not surprised Thierry Henry made your list. I have to say, I did have a little bit of a giggle when I saw Clint Dempsey. <laughs> Clint yeah. Dempsey is on your list for Fulham 4, Juventus 1 in 2010. Yeah, and um, I have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. Um, my, I surprised myself because... Um, Clint Dempsey actually only played 29 minutes of that game as well, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, why did I choose that? Because of all uh, the sporting events I've been at, this was the most emotional moment that I've lived was when Clint Dempsey scored in the 82nd minute of that tie against Juve. I have never experienced anything like it in terms of a communion between the players and the crowd and the reporters and the stewards. We were literally dancing on in Craven Cottage in the press box, which is that there's not a press box in Craven Cottage. You've got wooden benches and you're sat there. You've got absolutely no room. You're trying. Your laptop is uh, balanced on your knees 
And I remember, um, I think I jumped in the arms of a steward who was next to me. And so did all the journalists around us. So we were perfectly placed. You know, it's one of those moments when, you know, you're exactly at the right place in the stadium where you can see the arc of the ball. You see absolutely everything. And you're exactly, you could draw a line between where the ball nestles in the, in, in the net, the shot, and yourself. It's a straight line. So the best angle possible. And the fact that it was a lob makes it even nicer because you had the times so it's coming. Oh, it's oh, oh, it's in, and um, and it capped an absolutely unforget unforgettable um, uh, evening. Uh, Fulham were not supposed to. I mean, they'd done already fantastically well to reach that stage in the competition. They were against Juve. Now, okay, there were uh, uh, there was a sending off of Cannavaro, blah blah, but they still had to win. 4-1, and they did win 4-1. And Clint Dempsey, bless him, scored that fourth goal. And for that reason, it's uh, I had to pick him. Fair enough. Um, we're nearly out of time, but I do want to do some justice to this because it's N'Golo Kante, again, in a losing performance. You've you've picked yeah. something out that you think is emblematic of, emblematic of something. And, and actually, there's a, a supercut on... Um, I searched for this performance. Somebody's put a supercut together of all his touches, and it's amazing. He is amazing in this game. I've got to watch that again because um, uh, it was Leicester um, was visiting uh, Arsenal and uh, they lost that game really at the last gasp, um, 2-1. And actually at the time people thought, well, maybe that's the moment when uh, Leicester's you know, rush mm. for the title is coming to an end and Arsenal are, are, you know, scored an absolutely magnificent goal to, to win. But I don't think that any of us was prepared from, for N'Golo Kante because hardly any of us had seen him before. You know, he'd arrived from French second division. Okay, he'd been playing a few games and people were talking, saying, have you seen that midfielder? He's a bit special. And to see N'Golo Kante in the flesh for the first time was a revelation. And all of us, I mean, what I would call seasoned observers of the game in the press box, were all looking at each other and all saying, you seen that Kante guy? You seen that Kante guy? I remember one thing, one moment in particular. Uh, he intercepted the ball, I think, uh, just outside uh, of uh, his box, of the Leicester box, uh, on the right-hand side. And I thought, mm, that's pretty, pretty impressive. I just uh, looked down and typed just like, uh, I don't know, 27th minute Kante interception. Just I put my, looked up, so. Where is he? Oh, my goodness, he's there. He's, he's uh, managed, he, he's found the way to transport himself through space and time <laughs> without me realizing it. And he was then doing exactly the same thing on the other side of the pitch, like 50 yards ahead. And then I started watching literally just him and I realized, oh, it's not just the fact that he runs very quickly. It's not just the fact that he's incredibly strong for somebody of such small stature. It's because every single movement that that player does on the pitch is the consequence of perfect reading of what is happening around him. This guy has got one of the greatest football brains I've ever seen. He knows how to be in the right place at the right time. Now, Claude McAlele had it as well, you know, in this kind of... But Claude McAlele didn't quite have the kind of percussion, the kind of energy, um, almost kinetic energy, that Golo Kante could, you know, exude on, on the pitch. Because And also, he was a beautiful passer of the ball, uh, outside of the boot, inside of the boot. Uh, he could pass first time. Uh, he knew when to 
pass the ball back, but he was also looking constantly, can I hit one of my midfielders? Can I hit Jamie Vardy or whoever up front? All the time. And one-to-one, uh, no problem. He will he will win them all. But he was a big, he'd be ubiquitous. And, and it was a revelation that, my goodness, here is a very, very special player, which is which is lovely, by the way. When this happens, you're at a game, you don't know that player, and suddenly that player jumps out, you know, which is exactly, by the way, what I felt when I first saw Gabriel Martinelli in the Europa League for Arsenal later on. I thought, yeah. That's, this player is just amazing. And But Angolo Kante, my goodness, what can you say? And then from then on, he became the greatest uh, midfielder on the planet. Philippe, that was a sensational episode of You Had to Be There. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your memories. Cheers. Oh, no problem at all. My pleasure. You're so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there.